You're listening to the Ancestral Elements Podcast. I'm your host, Travis Gray. Join me as we cover topics about nutrition, health, and lifestyle so you can have ancestral health in a modern world. This episode is brought to you by Ancestral Elements Supplements. If you're looking for whole food, high quality, wild-crafted supplements, look at Ancestral Elements Supplements. I offer a liver and colostrum supplement as well as a wild bear clover tincture. With my background in food science, I'm able to personally formulate and create my own supplement line to ensure the integrity and quality of each product. In both supplements that I offer, none contain any fillers. They're strictly 100% food items, making them completely bioavailable and non-disruptive to the gut microbiome. For further information, go to AncestralElements.com and navigate to the supplements page. Now, here's the episode. Hi and welcome back. This is episode 44 of the Ancestral Elements podcast. Today, we're talking about fish. Specifically, I want to talk about this whale of a tail called Mercury. Okay, I promise that's my one and only fish pun. Well, I might throw a few more in, but we'll see. I really want to focus on this idea of Mercury in fish and other seafood in general, and how it may not be as big of a problem as it's made out to be. And as always, we're going to go back into the ancestral past and look at seafood from hunter-gatherers' perspectives and what it can provide you nutritionally because it is a nutritional powerhouse when it's compared to other animal foods. And as it turns out, it is safe for all stages of life and should be eaten in all stages of life. But we'll get into mercury and trophic levels and how it all breaks down a little bit later in the episode. I want to start by taking an ancestral look at fish and seafood in particular, because this was a food that literally created who we are mentally and nutritionally. There was a new article that was just published this week about people making it to North America 7,000 years earlier than they had previously thought, meaning that the Clovis people were thought to be the earliest arrivers on the North American continent, but now they're realizing that there was people here possibly much earlier up to 7,000 years. Now, this evidence gets a little murky with carbon dating and things like that, but what I'm getting at is they surely followed coastlines to get here. And you do that for one reason, because your acquisition of food is far greater and far more beneficial for traveling than if you were to take interior routes when you're traveling long distances and living off the land. Your coastal regions are always going to be more beneficial from a food and nutritional perspective, which wouldn't really surprise me if humans weren't on the North American continent 23,000 years ago. You know, that number just keeps getting pushed back more and more through the decades as we glean more information. So it's entirely possible, you know, not a guarantee, but I would say pretty likely. And the predominant reason people stick close to coastlines when traveling It provides relative ease of access because you're not trying to go through huge thick forests and underbrush, and you can kind of keep a sense of direction if you follow the coastline. But it also is an extreme edge habitat, which that's where all your productive hunting and fishing and foraging is going to be, and still is to this day. It's on edge habitats where habitats come together and a lot of different types of species are intermingling in a small zone. So, for example, a coastline, a lot of times a forest gives away to a beach 
that goes into the ocean. So it's in the edges. It's the edges of the forest and on the beach and at the water's edge where you get tons of species diversity. And that's where the food is. That's where easy calories are and highly nutrient-dense foods. And people have taken this route all through Africa, through Europe, through Asia. People have followed coastlines to get where they want to go. And then after they get set up with communities on the coasts, then typically people gradually move inland. And that's just generally how things go. Obviously, there's exceptions, but typically that's kind of the dominant migration pattern through untamed landscapes, through wild landscapes. When talking about fish and seafood, pound for pound, you're dealing with some of the most nutrient-dense foods on the planet and some of the most diverse. I mean, the ocean is productive and so are streams and lakes. And if we're talking pre-industrial revolution, even more so. If you look at seafood consumption worldwide, it's absolutely gone up because of our ability to export a lot of seafood. And we do export a ton of seafood annually from right here in the United States. But as a country, our seafood consumption has basically remained exactly the same for the last 30 years. And in some instances, it's actually dwindling. I mean, and there's a ton of press around, you know, the fisheries running out of fish and, you know, seafood not being around by 2040 and all that, which there may be some truth to that you know, especially with certain species of fish. But we manage our fish very, very strictly in the United States. We don't just catch fish willy-nilly. I mean, there's limits put on fish, very strict limits. You know, so fish just disappearing isn't really that likely. I mean, there's fish coming off of the endangered species list <clears throat> all of the time. Like bluefin tuna just got taken off the endangered species list because they found out that there was way more than they initially had thought. And this type of thing happens quite often, actually. And mostly when they're talking about seafood running out, they're talking about just a few distinct fisheries, like cod or haddock, basically species that have huge, huge industries around them. When I talk about seafood and fish, I'm talking about all of it. The stuff that people don't normally eat a ton of in a given year. And I'm going to include shellfish in this scenario because shellfish is just as important as any other type of seafood. It may be in some ways more important because it's easier to go out and get yourself. It's one sh Shellfish and harvesting shellfish is one of those species that is a great introduction into the wild foods world and harvesting your own wild food. Mussels are super easy and very abundant on rocky shorelines. And given the time of year, if you don't have red tide or some type of paralytic shellfish poisoning, then you can go out and just get them with your fingers. Clams are another very easy thing to harvest. You know, everybody can get involved from young to old. Oysters, another great example. All three of those species that I just mentioned, they're not going to disappear. They're not going anywhere. There's thousands of them scattered on coastlines all over the world. So don't be so shellfish. Okay, that was my last pun. I promise I'm done. But really, when you think about it, those are great foods. They're super high in minerality. Things like zinc, selenium, iodine, magnesium, all these awesome minerals that are needed in the human body, and that in some ways 
we have a hard time getting with our food because a lot of times the soils are so depleted, you don't pick up a lot of those trace minerals anymore. If I had to look at one type of animal food and recommend it, it probably would be seafood. I mean, as I said earlier, pound for pound, you can't get much better. You know, if you take salmon, for example, super high in protein, really well-balanced omega-3 to omega-6 fat ratio, so it's controlling inflammation. As a matter of fact, it's limiting your inflammation. It's reducing inflammation. Super good for things like DHA and EPA, right? Things like cod and other whitefish are high in vitamin D. So if you're in northern latitudes, it's a great thing to supplement with in the winter months. You know, any type of shellfish, whether it's prawns or oysters or clams, they're all going to be really high in minerals. So when looking at seafood as a nutritional category, it's really hard to beat. You don't get close with really any type of other land mammal, wild or domestic. Now, obviously, you want to incorporate those into your diet because every balanced diet needs those types of foods because they're different in their amino acid profiles and nutrient content, and you want a well-rounded diet in the animal kingdom. But you could survive off of seafood much easier than you would be able to survive off of just land mammals. Not only because it's easier to harvest seafood, but it's more variety. Think about octopus versus yellowfin tuna, right? On one hand, you have this kind of tentacle, chewy food versus a red, almost steak-like characteristic coming off of a tuna, right? Two very different foods from taste to palatability, but yet coming out of the same ocean. It's pretty amazing if you stop and think about it. And then you also have seaweeds, which I'll save that for another podcast. But that's a whole other kind of branch of this thing and harvesting on those edge habitats. Okay, so enough with variety. Oh, and another note, people who don't like seafood, I don't really understand that. Because there's so much variety, you really mean to tell me that you can't find a single piece of seafood that you would enjoy, right? How do you not find at least something that you can tolerate, right? Who doesn't like whitefish? It's so delicate and almost tasteless to some degree. I mean, that's why you add butter and herbs to something like a rock cod, you know, very mild tasting. I think most of the time when people say they don't like seafood, they probably haven't tried that many, or if they have, they've probably had really old seafood that can have very off flavors, just like any other type of food that you're eating that is past its inedible stage. But in general, I think most people like some type of seafood. Generally, for the last 30 years, it's been about five ounces per week that people have eaten on average. Now, obviously, there's drastic variability in that number. The nutritional guidelines for the average amount of seafood you should be eating per week is eight ounces. So we're actually on the recommended amount of seafood we should be consuming. And that recommendation can go up to three days a week as well, which that's about what I do. I might do five days a week on average. I'm probably more like four or five days a week personally, but that's just me. So really what I'm getting at is to be constantly worried about too much seafood, it's a bit unfounded. And the thing you hear is mercury, right? There's too much mercury in seafood and I'm going to get mercury poisoning from methylmercury, which yes, in some fish, there's some high mercury content, but luckily there's two minerals that do a 
fantastic job at binding to mercury and getting them out of the tissues, which the number one mineral is selenium, which predominantly all the seafood is high in this trace mineral. And the second one is zinc. Both of those minerals bind to mercury and purge them from the body. That mercury study was kind of based on a paper that kind of over-exaggerated the harmful effects of mercury. They looked at mercury from an isolated reductionist lens and basically just tested the amount of mercury that is found in higher concentrations of long-lived fish like swordfish or big-eye tuna, for example, and put that amount in the food supply and saw what it did without the other trace minerals in their proper content along with it, right? So you got this skewed picture of what mercury can do in a biological system because it was done in a laboratory setting, right? It wasn't eaten as a whole food. When you're eating seafood as a whole food, you don't need to worry about mercury too much. I mean, you think about the countries that base their diet around seafood, countries like Japan. The entire country of Japan, if mercury poisoning was really a huge issue that a lot of people think it is, the whole country of Japan would have mercury poisoning. They're eating fish almost nightly. I mean, they're eating way more fish than we do on average as Americans. So yes, you should be a little bit careful when eating long-lived fish, but you don't need to worry about it all the time. If that's all you were eating, you know, for every meal, I would be concerned. And this really, there's only about five species that are on the watch list for high mercury. It's swordfish, big-eye tuna, orange ruffy, king mackerel, shark, marlin, and that's about it. And you can still have those things. You know, you, it's not like you'll die from eating some marlin. You just don't want to eat it every single day for years and years. And if you're super worried about heavy metal accumulation, take some chlorella or another chelating agent like cilantro. You do those two things in combination, you're going to purge out a lot of excess heavy metals that could potentially end up in the tissues, which that's a nice little hack. If you're eating something like tuna and you're worried about mercury, just take some chlorella before and after, and it'll bind to mercury and get it out of your system, which chlorella is a microalgae. And I'll link to those things in the show notes so you can take a look at what chlorella does in the body. And I also linked to a chart showing what fish is high in mercury. So in other words, you have maybe six or seven species that are high in mercury. PCBs are also a thing you'll want to look out for in especially freshwater fish. Obviously, with freshwater fish, you don't want to be fishing waters that are anywhere near industry runoff, chemical runoff, or like right next to a boat launch with, you know, gas and oil dumping out into the water, right? Like you want to make sure you're fishing clean waters. That should go without saying. Like anytime you're fishing, just like you want to be eating clean food off a landscape, you want to be eating clean fish off of an ocean or some type of waterway. So you have all these other species. You have scallops and lobster and crab and oysters and, you know, hundreds of other species of fish that you can eat without worrying about heavy metals accumulating and mercury accumulating in your body. It's safe enough that they recommend pregnant women eating fish up to three nights a week, pregnant and breastfeeding women, which if you're pregnant or trying to get pregnant, absolutely incorporate more fish into your diet. It's, again, high in protein, high in balanced fats, high in trace minerals, 
tiny central minerals. It's everything your body needs to ramp up its nutrition. And along with other foods that you're eating, you're going to balance out your diet far more easily using these types of foods. And there's one other myth that circulates around fish in particular, in especially in my field, in the nutrigenomics field of a metabolite being raised in your blood called TMAO or trimethylamine oxide, which is also found in saturated fat in things like beef or eggs, for example, you'll get this compound. Why it's such a big deal in fish is that fish naturally have this compound as a metabolite all the time. And what it does is it actually thins the blood in fish. So as they get pulled to a surface and they lose negative pressure, this particular metabolite from that kind of hydrostatic pressure change in the fish gets elevated. And if you eat that fish, then your levels of that metabolite of TMAO will potentially get elevated. But there's a lot of confusion and misnomer circulating around this particular metabolite. You know, they were started measuring it in people that had heart attacks and strokes and found it was there when people were having heart attacks and strokes. And so they thought, oh, well, maybe this metabolite was causing heart attacks and strokes. But it turned out to be actually false. It was just that, in general, the people that were coming in for heart attack and strokes were obese or overweight individuals with high amounts of TMAO in their bodies to begin with because of a poor diet. Whereas if you're a healthy individual eating a healthy diet, this marker is pointless to measure because it doesn't cause any type of ill-sighted effects. So the fact that fish in particular raises your TMAO levels in your blood after consumption doesn't matter if you are a healthy individual. Now, if you're morbidly obese and eating a bunch of junk food all the time, you may want to be a little bit more cognizant about it and limit the processed food and maybe just switch to fish and seafood. But this marker as a standalone measure is not a good one. So unfortunately, it's just kind of a new thing that made fish get an even worse PR campaign than it already had. And it's really unfortunate because there is so many good things about fish, like I previously talked about. You know, the TMAO thing, not a big deal. You know, mercury, not a huge deal if you're careful about it. You know, if, especially if you're eating fish that are low on the trophic level. So things like sardines and anchovies, smaller, high EPA, DHA, omega-3 fatty acid fish. Great things to be incorporating into diet. Again, things like shellfish that aren't long-lived clams, oysters, mussels, prawns, all of those are perfectly okay and very low in heavy metals. You know, there's nothing wrong with those. Unfortunately, we've just kind of dropped off with our seafood consumption the past 50 years or so. And really, we've replaced it with chicken and beef, which I think is a problem because fish is, in my opinion, healthier than both chicken and beef, beef especially chicken. Chicken is the highest cholesterol meat that you can basically eat. It's a fine meat. There's nothing wrong with it per se, but to eat as much chicken as we do on average as Americans, it's an issue. There's not enough amino acid diversity in chicken unless you're eating the condyles of bones and doing bone broths with it to really justify us eating as much of it as we do. You'd be way better off with a lean red meat like bison than you would be with chicken or seafood for that matter. So really, it's time that fish and seafood gets an update with their PR campaign. You know, it's 
been demonized a little bit unfairly, I think, over the past decades. And I get it. You know, there's some environmental impact that has been at the forefront of that demonization, right? There's industry around that of people trying to eat less fish because they're worried about us overfishing in the oceans. I understand that. But there's sustainable operations that you can participate in or go and do it yourself in a sustainable way and supply yourself and your family with robust, adequate nutrition that we need. You know, this thing about the soils and us eating a lot of monocropped vegetables and a lot of vegetables without much species diversity, so a lot of phenotypic diversity, like you see in the brassica family that I've talked about over and over, right? Brussels sprouts are the same as cabbage, is the same as kohlrabi, is the same as collard greens, is the same as romanesco, is the same as cauliflower, is the same as broccoli, right? All those are the same exact species with a lot of phenotypic diversity. That's an issue. Factory farm meats that aren't themselves healthy. We are missing a lot of key minerals and nutrients in our diet that should be there, but unfortunately aren't there. Or if they are there, they're synthetically drive, and we have a hard time metabolizing them into our bodies because you're using synthetic fertilizers or antibiotics, I mean, that further cause disruption of the gut microbiome. So switching to resources from the sea, from the, from the rivers, in my opinion, is a great way to do that and a great way to supply your body with adequate nutrition that has been largely untouched by large farm-scale operations like our plants or land mammals have been. The fact that you can go out and buy wild seafood still is fantastic. I mean, you can't buy wild mammals on the market in the United States. We don't have market hunting anymore. So the fact that we have a wild food resource that is high in nutrition and we can get good, clean access that's sustainably done, that's something we all should be incorporating into our diets way more than we do. Oh, and I guess one more bad PR campaign around seafood is microplastics. This one is interesting because if you look at the highest concentration of microplastics in food, it's not seafood. It's actually apples. It's conventionally grown apples. They have a microplastic concentration of 195,000 particles per gram, whereas mussels, the highest seafood in microplastics, is somewhere between 0.13 particles per gram and 2 particles per gram. Nowhere near apples. Oh, and by the way, the second top two foods behind apples are carrots and broccoli. They come in in about 100,000 particles per gram. So when we're talking about microplastics, we can't just talk about seafood in the oceans. Yes, it's a concern, but I guarantee far more people eating microplastics from vegetables, aka broccoli, carrots, and fruits like apples, than they're getting from seafood. So again, it's this kind of muddy picture on seafood and this kind of demonization of a very important nutrient. So I guess what I'm saying is don't clam up on the seafood. Okay, that was my third and honest to God this time final pun. Don't write it off. Don't throw the baby out with the bathwater, so to speak, because it really is important. Incorporate seafoods into your diet and regularly into your diet because it's going to bolster and round out your nutrition in a very different way 
than conventionally commercially grown crops and produced meat is going to. It's kind of the last frontier, the last wild frontier that you have access to. So utilize it. And yes, there are some concerns to be taken under consideration, but there's concerns with everything you're eating in this day and age. So as long as you know that they're there and you know some tools to mitigate those concerns, that's all you can really do. You know, again, selenium and zinc are two amazing minerals that bind to mercury to help get it out of your body. You know, chlorella is another great chelating agent along with cilantro. If you want to take those after you eat any type of seafood, do it. And those are ways you can help mitigate potential harmful effects that may or may not be there in the seafood that you're eating. There are things to be done is what I'm saying. I mean, I would be far more concerned with eating conventionally grown apples with the microplastics in them than I would be getting trace amounts of potential mercury, knowing that I could go to chelating agents. No one's worried about apples, you know, and calling for, you know, the apple industry to stop producing apples, right? I'm sorry if I've ruined apples for you, by the way, but if you listened to my podcast last week, I probably already ruined apples for you at least conventionally store-bought apples, so hopefully you're okay with that. But look to seafood for proper nutrition, especially for developmental nutrition. It's not something that's talked about a whole lot. It's very good for kids, young developing kids to get good nutrition. They can eat up to three ounces a week in seafood from the age of two to 11. You know, that's they can round out a lot of their diet in seafood and be perfectly okay. So it's not just for adults. It can be used, again, all ages, through all stages of life, from 2 to 92, and should be utilized quite frequently. I don't know if you have to do it five days a week like I am, but you easily could. Utilizing things like scallops or shrimp or salmon or some cod you know, or sardines, you know, any of those types of fish, not going to be high in mercury. You know, the microplastics, not as bad as conventional produce. So, you know, it's in a lot of ways the lesser of many evils. Not perfect, but again, no food really is in this day and age anymore. You know, even wild game is feeding on industrial monocrop cornfields full of, you know, Roundup Ready pesticides and fungicides and insecticides, right? Like, it's really hard to find very pristine clean, untouched by any type of industrialization or human inputs, food anymore. It's just not really much of a thing, unfortunately. And a lot of that is because going back to the edge habitat, that's where the most food diversity is. That's where your species diversity is. It's on the edges. And unfortunately, the more we develop the more suburban sprawls sprawl out into rural areas, those edge habitats get gobbled up. And so that means more animals, more species are going to be handed industrial chemicals and items that they have to contend with. So you have to do the best you can. Luckily, with seafood, there are multiple to tools that you can deploy to mitigate some of the harmful effects that come along with it which that is yet to be said about some other things that we regularly eat. So go enjoy some seafood. If you've been feeling guilty about it or you're a little timid to eat it, don't be. Know that there's things you can do and enjoy those foods because they are good foods for you to be eating and feeding your family. 
All right, that's going to do it for another episode. Thank you so much for listening. I'll talk to you guys this next week. Get outside, eat some good species diversity in your animal foods this week, and I'll talk to you guys later. Thank you for listening to the Ancestral Elements Podcast. If you like what you're hearing, leave me a rating and review. This will ensure that people can find the podcast so that we can grow the audience, and it will help me secure guests for future episodes. If you have suggestions on what you want to hear on upcoming episodes, go to AncestralElements.com and leave me a comment. I would love to hear your guys' thoughts and inputs and answer any questions that you may have.